morning, everyone. Our precious Pastor Jeremy has the week off, so uh, thankfully Chelsea shared most of what I'm going to share this morning, so I shouldn't be able to mess it up too bad. So Jeremy can take a breather if he's streaming online, I don't know. Um, I am excited to share with you from this uh, passage that has meant a lot to me for a long time because it was um, it was in this passage when I was in college that this gave me like a ton of freedom from, like Chelsea said, like carrying a weight I didn't need to carry. And so my prayer this morning and this week as I've thought about sharing with you all is that you also would experience a lot of joy and freedom in the same way that John the Baptist does even as he replies to his followers here. So we'll dive in. Just for context, if you're joining us for the first time, or if you've been here for a couple weeks, but maybe not all of our series in John so far, these first three chapters in the Gospel of John tend to be uh, Jesus showing how he is better than the religion of Judaism. Now when chapter four begins, we're going to start to see how this spreads out beyond the, the boundaries of Judaism to where Jesus says he's also better than the things of the Gentiles as well. But even in these first three chapters, he, he shows, uh, you know, in chapter two that he provides the better wine and gives more joy to the people at the wedding of Cana. He then shows himself to be the better temple, the better mediator between God and man. And in chapter three, he talks to Nicodemus in the passage before this one, and he provides a better birth, one that leads to life but does not end in death. He's the better sacrifice at the end of the last section we celebrated on Good Friday, right? The, just as Moses lifted up his staff in the desert, so Jesus, the Son of Man, must be lifted up. But he provides a better sacrifice on behalf of his people. And here in this passage, he's going to be offering, uh, showing himself to provide a better purification from sin, a better version of baptism. There's a pastor who I really enjoy listening to. It shaped a lot of how I think about preaching. His name is Alistair Begg. You may have heard of him on the radio. He sounds amazing because he's Scottish. So I think he's a good preacher. He might just be Scottish. But I was like, he, he, he wrote this small book um, on preaching. And, and in it, in the very beginning, he describes uh, speaking at a convention alongside another pastor. They would both do a sermon each morning. At the convention, they had a lectern for him to place his Bible on, a small pulpit. And every, every morning, when it was the other person's turn to preach, he would move the pulpit over to the side. And then when it was Alistair's turn to preach, he would move the pulpit back to the center, set his Bible down, and expound the scriptures. And this happened every morning throughout the week of this convention. To the point where, like, the audience was kind of catching on and thought it was pretty funny. Every time, you know, Alistair would bring it on, set it down, place his Bible down, and the other guy would bring it off. But towards the end of the week, Alistair explained why he did this, like why it, why it was important to him. Because the, in Christian tradition, the pulpit is more than just a place for the Bible. And we don't just use a pulpit here at Gospel Life Church because Jeremy's manuscripts are so thick. It's not like, oh, a music stand won't hold up under the weight, you know. But we, we use it because of two things. One is we want to make sure visually that we understand as a church that the word is central to our gathering, that the message is central to our gathering, and two, that the messenger is not. 
you know? It's like the messenger, the preacher, hides himself behind the word, behind the pulpit. So that what you leave with is not like, wow, like, you know, this person is so talented. You know, Jeremy, what a great preacher. But rather, what a great God. He would want you to leave that way too. Like, for example. There's this old story of Charles Spurgeon, I think I've told it before, but he is told after a sermon that he gave, one of the best preachers, you know, we've ever had, but he's told, like, what a great sermon by this woman as he walks off stage. And his remark to her was, the devil told me that five minutes ago, you know. So Jeremy always makes a remark when he gets compliments for sermons, you know, he he doesn't, I don't think he actually says that to you all, hopefully. (laughs) He's crazy, I don't know. Um... But it's true, like our desire as we, bring, as we preach the word as elders is not that you would think highly of us, but that you would think highly of Christ. I tell that because we come to a passage here where there is a mistaking of the message and the messenger and which one is more important. And this is not only tied in like the religious realm. Okay, this is not only a problem for the religious where we get confused and we identify so much with a leader, a preacher of some sort, that they can do no wrong. We start to justify their faults. We start to justify their sins. This happens in politics too, as you may have noticed. We start to see things that are valuable that maybe they aren't, we shouldn't value them as much as we do. And some of it we do unconsciously. So there's been like hundreds of articles written about how politicians that are taller tend to get more votes than politicians that are shorter. There was a Texas Tech professor that actually wanted to study this, so he had his class come in and draw pictures of political leaders and the citizens they led. And on average, the citizens were 12% shorter than the leaders, you know. So then he was like, oh man, maybe there's something to this, I should study it further. Malcolm Gladwell, he writes, a popular author, he wrote in his book, Blink, he, he polled Fortune 500 companies and found that 58% of them had CEOs over six feet tall. Just for perspective, men in America are, 14% of them are six feet or taller. That's like, why does height matter? You know, does that make you better at business, being tall? Does it make you a better leader, being tall? When we have these, like, standards for leaders, and whether it's conscious or unconscious, a lot of times the messenger can take precedence over the message. This is what we find in John chapter 3. Except that in the Bible, in the history of Christianity and in the story of the Bible, we see that God tends to subvert this idea over and over again, right? It's the younger who receives the inheritance that the older deserved. It's the widowed Moabite Ruth who ends up being important in the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus himself is born from Nazareth, a place where the people remark, well, what good can come from there? David defeats Goliath. And even when David is named king, he's like the last brother they would guess would be anointed for the job. Small. I think it's because God knows our you know, precondition, our bent towards making the messenger more important than the message. But the messenger doesn't have power, right? The message of the gospel is what is the power of salvation for all who believe. And again, this needs to be taught <clears throat> even to those who are very, very, very close to the message himself. Verse 22, chapter 3. I'm going to break this down into four separate sections, the first of which is going to be these first five verses, the poison of pride. Then in the next four verses, we'll look at, <clears throat> we'll look at the joy of humility. The final sections will be both the perspective of heaven and the glory of the gospel. 
First, the poison of pride. Verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. Very practical, John the Baptist. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Just for context, the reason that he includes John had not yet been put in prison is not like, it's kind of obvious because he's here baptizing. It's because in the, in the st- stories of the synoptics, this takes place before Jesus has begun his ministry. Earlier on, and it's, this in particular is not mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But clearly, like, Jesus has now talked to Nicodemus, he has some disciples, and he's been baptized. We've seen that interaction already. And now he and his disciples have gone to another place near enough to John that they're noticing both men and their disciples are baptizing. And a discussion arises between John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now, the word purification here is the same one used back to describe like the stone jars that were used to change the water into wine for Jesus. It's not talking about like, um, it's really like, how are people cleansed? So that's referring to the, the traditional rhythm of the Jewish people, how they would seek to be their, their, have their guilt removed, cleansed from them. This is what they're discussing here. They obviously didn't come to an answer, and like any good students, then they go to the professor. So they come to John, verse 26, and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And here we get to the spicy part of the story. Because they, they, even like in this first remark, they exaggerate. We know that not all are going to Jesus. Just in verse 23, it says John was also baptizing, you know, because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Sounds like a lot of people were coming and being baptized. But in these disciples' eyes, oh, everybody's going to Jesus to be baptized. And John's answer shows us what we have hinted at already. That this is not really a question about purification. It's a question about popularity. It's a question about popularity. They were bitter and they were jealous. And they're following John, right? And John is like this fascinating biblical character. Besides like his wardrobe of wearing, you know, camel skin and, and eating locusts and honey. He was born for one particular reason, which was to bear witness to the Messiah. And the timing of the, or, like the order of events of how John and Jesus interact is important here because this takes place after John has already expla- exclaimed in front of these disciples, look, that is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's already told them who Jesus is. He's already told them that his purpose in the world was to be a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the path of the Lord. Like He is pointing to Jesus over and over again. They've seen him point to Jesus. They've seen him in person point to Jesus in person as the promised Messiah. And yet they're concerned that the crowd is now going to Jesus. So Here's what, here's what Mark says about uh, John the Baptist. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. 
And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John himself, with these followers listening, had talked about a person who is mightier than I, who is strap of the sandal, I'm unworthy to stoop down and untie. And yet the pride of being connected to this man, John the Baptist, was making them delusional about their place in redemptive history. They didn't like that he was taking some of John's popularity away, that some of the attention was now going to Jesus. They were blinded by their pride. You guys remember, I'm going to make an assumption that you all have seen Toy Story, one of the great classic movies of our time. I'm almost tempted to say, raise your hand if you haven't seen Toy Story, so we can do some intervention after the service. But I was like, there's a, so Buzz Lightyear lands in Andy's room with amongst the other toys. And what's unique about Buzz is not that he's a cool toy, it's that he actually thinks he's a real space ranger. Okay? He thinks he's a real space ranger, he thinks he can fly, and even wants to show off how he flies, and then through like a crazy circumstance, he flies, you know? But later on in the story, there's this iconic scene when he's going through Sid's house trying to escape and he comes across a television that's been left on. The commercial for Buzz Lightyear, Space Ranger toy, is playing on the TV. It catches his eye and all of a sudden the realization starts to dawn on him as he's like, you know, he's got real buttons and he pushes the button and makes the same sound that the toy on the TV is making. But then the thing that really breaks him is the big letters flashing at the bottom of the commercial, not a flying toy. Like a disclaimer. And he's distraught, but he still can't believe it. You know, people have told him over and over again, you're, you're a toy. Woody shakes him, you know, you're a toy. You're not a space ranger. And he goes to the top of the stairs and he opens up his spacesuit wings and he jumps off towards an open window to make his escape and to prove them wrong that he is a real space ranger. Except that he's not. And so he falls and breaks off his arm. His plastic arm. It's like really intense. If you haven't seen the movie, it's just, it's, it's, he's a toy. The disciples of John think that John the Baptist can fly and they want him to show it, you know? And he's like this big disclaimer, like, I'm not the one. I'm not the one. That guy, he's the one. But again, like they've replaced now the value of being tied to the messenger with the value of the message itself so that They want John to give them some help understanding why these fools would go to Jesus and his disciples for purification. Because John's the one who's called the Baptist. He's got the nickname and everything. Perhaps their hope is that John will show off his greatness or perhaps he'll tell them, you know, don't worry about it. Like, they'll come back or I got a few more tricks up my sleeve. We can keep my clout high. But John doesn't want anything to do with their delusion. Because he knows that just like for Buzz Lightyear, like delusion is going to lead to destruction. The only way to deal with this, the only way to find real joy is to ground yourself in reality. And so this is John's answer. And we find that unlike the poison of pride that his followers have consumed, he finds joy in humility. He answers like this, verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And here's the real dagger to his followers. John says, he must increase, I must decrease. 
The first part of his response, like a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven, is kind of like this aphorism, this general truth, general observation about the world. No one can receive anything about, unless it is given to them from heaven. So unless God decides to give you something, a position in this case, you will not have it. Jesus gets to be the Savior. John gets to be the Baptist, the one who tells people about the Savior. That's his place in history, and God has decided it. His disciples want him to have more than he does. They want him to have the crowd still coming. They want, maybe they want some more glory for themselves for following him. But John's reply points them to a greater truth, which is this. If you're unsatisfied with your lot in life, that's like really practical. Because all of us probably go through this at some point. Maybe all of us go through this almost every day. There's like what you're unsatisfied with, your spouse or your singleness or your house or your job, your lot in life. Your dissatisfaction with what you've been given is dissatisfaction with God's wisdom because he's the one who's decided what you have. Dia Carson says it this way, deep discontent over God's wise, sovereign disposition of people and things betrays not only unbelief and faithlessness in our hearts, but the worst form of the perennial human sin, the arrogance that wants to be God and stand where God stands. And John doesn't want to fall into that trap. So he reminds his followers of what he himself said. I'm not the Christ, but have been sent before him. And there's so much irony here, you know. John's followers concerned that Jesus is becoming po- more popular than John. When John has told them that his job is to make Jesus more popular than John, you know. It's like, but we can get tied to a messenger in a way that makes it hard for us to remember the message. They say they want to follow John, except they don't actually follow what he says. And ironically, now his followers are not willing to follow him to this place of humility. Because while they're arguing, like, how can this be that people are going to Jesus instead of you? He's saying they should. They should. Praise God. Let's picture for a second the upcoming nuptials of our own engaged couple, Jacob and Megan. Imagine with me, if you will. Prior to the wedding, the guests are mulling around as they do, waiting for the groom and the bride to come out so that the ceremony can be underway, right? We're all excited. We're all there for the ceremony. And Josh Nelson is there, mulling about with the other guests. And Josh is a witty guy. He's very fun. He knows how to juggle. And so he starts to entertain the crowd. He's very, very, very happy to do so. He likes all the attention. You know, he's juggling, he's, he's juggling, I don't know what else he does, you know, things. Um, <clears throat> he's showing us how to do CPR, he knows a lot of tricks, okay, so. <laughs> and, and it's great, but then all of a sudden, like, the music starts to play, the pastor gets up, Jacob comes forward, brings his parents forward, sits them down, stands up front, now everybody's taking their seats. Josh is left alone with his, with his juggling uh, pins, bowling pins. And he's like, well, this won't do. Why is everyone going to sit down and staring at Jacob as he stands up at the front by the altar? So he goes to his car and he starts to pull out a chainsaw and some swords and some gasoline. And he's muttering to himself, you know, like, this will take care. It's like, that's ridiculous to think about, right? Because they're not there for Josh, you know? They're not, there for, they're not there for Josh. In fact, 
Josh would be wrong for doing so. What should give him joy and what should give all the guests joy is to see the groom, to hear his voice as he proclaims his love to his bride, and then to see the bride be united with him. This is like the illustration that John gives of like, how ridiculous is it that you want me to take any glory away from the groom when I'm only the friend of the groom? But he goes beyond that. He says, look at this, he says, The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, my joy, the joy of mine is now complete. The joy of mine is now complete. The greatest joy you can have is finding your actual place in history, which is not in the place of Jesus, allowing him to save you and then celebrating him as he does so that you too can rejoice when you hear his voice. And this gives us great joy and it gives Christ great glory as he stands in the place of the groom. Imagine how ridiculous it would be if in this scenario, Josh, as a last resort, said, you know, they're still not watching me with my chainsaws and, and whatever. And he runs up and he pushes Jake off of the platform and stands at the altar and expects Megan to come down and marry him instead. It's a good thing Amy is in nursery right now, Josh. It's terrible. <laughs> But it'd be ridiculous, and this is what John's followers are asking John the Baptist to do. This is the picture John paints of the type of man that his disciples want him to be. And while it's appropriate to like enlarge the joy of the guests as we anticipate the wedding, that's kind of what we do here every Sunday. We anticipate this final wedding of Jesus coming to be with his bride, and it is good for us to enlarge our joy being together. When the groom arrives, you must take your seat. Here in John chapter 3, the groom has arrived, so John, his friend, takes his seat. And this gives him great joy, and it gives Christ great glory. It's pride that leads to bitterness in John's disciples, but it's humility that leads to joy for John himself. And that humility comes from seeing Jesus clearly for who he is. Let me say that again. Humility comes from seeing Jesus clearly for who he actually is. John continues his argument by giving him who Jesus really is, which is that Jesus has a perspective different from his own, different from an earthly perspective. Jesus has a perspective of heaven. Because when John sees Jesus for who he truly is, the only right response is he must increase and I must decrease. This works. John the Baptist finds great joy, not begrudgingly saying, okay, God, I guess this is my lot in life. Like I did a lot for you. I ate locusts. I lived in the wilderness. I wore camels for like he did a lot. I, I preached and I baptized a ton of people. I did all these good works and now I have to sit on the sidelines. But instead of swallowing that bitterness of pride, he wholeheartedly embraces the will of God. The question is like, why? Why does John have to decrease and why does Jesus have to increase? And I think we have to answer that. We have to ask that question. And I think Chelsea, it's like, I'm so grateful for your testimony this morning because she pointed out exactly why we have to ask that question because we hear the mantra all the time. We hear the mantra all the time like, you need, you need to find yourself. You know, you do you. Like, you are the center of your universe. Be true to yourself. Do what you love. And sadly, like it's preached from many platforms behind pulpits in men, like this morning that the primary purpose of the Bible is to make you some kind of better version of yourself. To help you climb a ladder to a higher moral plane. Where the teaching revolves around the 
idea that God exists to make you happy or fix your problems, you know. But here, John says, no, the deepest joy is not found in placing myself at the center of the story and God is some kind of like cosmic butler. It's found in placing Jesus at the center of my world. Why? Why does that work? It works because any view that doesn't place Jesus at the center of the universe is grounded in delusion because he is the center of the universe. It's like just because John's followers don't acknowledge that doesn't make it not true, you know? Just because Buzz Lightyear doesn't think he's a toy, it doesn't mean it's not true. We, we can have a response of pride or a response of humility, neither of which will change the fact that Jesus really is the center of the universe and the center of God's plan for saving us. So in the next verses, verses 31 through 34, John lays out the argument of why Jesus is worthy of being at the center, why he actually is at the center. Because of the position that God gave him. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So the argument's simple. Jesus is above John because Jesus is above all, because Jesus is from above. Jesus is not of the earth. And the earth here doesn't necessarily signify like sinful. It just means finite, limited, which Jesus is not. His perspective is not limited. His power is not limited. His supply of the Spirit is not limited. It's given without measure. All things are in his hands. And so when he testifies, because of his different origin and because of his different perspective, we should listen to what he says. He knows things that we don't know, and he's seen things we've not seen, and he alone can testify about God in a way that John the Baptist can't. No one can. And so his testimony must be trusted if you want to find yourself in truth and not in a delusion. This is like very similar to what John the Apostle writes in chapter 1 too. Like, the light has come into the world, but the world did not receive him. Like, his own people did not receive him. And yet there are some who would believe. There's obviously exceptions to this rule because John talks about those who would believe. And these believers, they're the people who are going to push all their chips into the table. They're going to bet their lives on the idea that what Jesus says is true. That who he claims to be is true. That he actually is above because he's from above. My brother works as um, an air traffic controller. And uh, I was sitting at the back... You know, like just thinking over my message as we were singing. And then I saw Aaron Young was here, and I was like, oh, I hope what I'm about to say is accurate. So, but, but he, because Aaron's a pilot. Um, so I was like, but I was talking with him about this. Do you know why they put air traffic control towers, you know, in towers up in the air? It's like, I, I thought it was because so they can see all the planes as they like come in and leave. That's like partially true. But one of the big, big reasons that they're built up high is so that they can actually see everything below them that's on the ground. They have to be able to have clear visibility of what's happening below on the ground so that they can safely direct the planes from their parking spot, the gate, to the runway that they need to go into. 
And they can do this not only because of the information they have on their screen of knowing like which planes are coming in when and from what direction and what runway they're going to land on, but also because they are above. They can see what's going on below. They can see whether there's any obstructions in the way. They can see whether there's any dangers around the corner that the pilot might not be able to see from the ground. Because of this knowledge that they have in the tower, the pilots listen to the air traffic controllers. That's the chain of command. Because the controller can see what they can't. They have knowledge that the pilots do not. They know what planes are landing and when and where, and they can keep them safe on their travels. Likewise, you are the pilot of your life. So you can choose the path of John the Baptist of humility or the path of his followers of pride. You can choose. You get to drive the plane. The question is, John says, are you going to like listen to the air traffic controller? The one who is above, who can see the dangers that you can't see. Who knows what's around the corner, who knows what you don't. It's not just like a... It's not just like, wow, that's cool, like Jesus knows things, I should follow him. It's like... This actually matters in those moments of life where you go through something really horrible or something really scary. And, and you kind of have two paths, one of which is to be like going through life hoping that like the randomness of pain doesn't hit you too hard. Or trusting his voice that when you go through something hard, he actually knows something you don't know. Like he's seen things that you haven't seen. Trusting that there's a purpose to this thing that you have to go through. This thing that you have to endure. So it matters in a really practical way whether you hear his voice and listen or not. Whether you trust him as one who is above. Including above you. John moves on now to say that if you trust him you'll find hope in the gospel. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So in verse 35, we see that the Father, too, sees Jesus differently than he sees John. He's given him more than he's given John. In fact, he's given him all things, the Spirit without measure. So denying Jesus' place of authority over your life is also denying God himself because God has also given him this authority over your life. This is like God's decision to give all things into his hand. I think pride begins this juncture that you know better than God. And it works itself out in, like, in this chapter, but also in our lives in a few different ways. For one, like despair reveals that you lack trust in God's sovereignty. And bitterness reveals that you disagree with what he chose for your life. And pride itself says no when God says yes, or yes when God says no. And so what pride reveals is that you actually want to stand in the place of God. Let me say that again. Despair reveals that you lack faith in God's sovereignty. Bitterness reveals that you disagree with what he's given you in life. And pride comes when you want to stand in his place and decide right from wrong. So that you can say yes to what he said no to, and you can, and he, you can say no to what he said yes to. And these poisons lead all humanity to death. The only escape is to find the truth, to believe the truth, to find the Son who gives life. 
But listen to verse 36 closely again. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Option one. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Option two. It doesn't say disobey death and wrath, obey eternal life. It doesn't say that. It says disobey destruction and wrath, believe and have eternal life. I was thinking like if... uh, if I found myself in a basketball game against some, the Minnesota Timberwolves, I don't know. And the coach was like, Justin, you can beat them. All you have to do is dunk it. I'd be like, that, I can't dunk, you know? <laughs> the only chance that our team has is if I pass the ball to somebody who can. This is like how the Bible treats obedience too. Is like, we are given this task, but we, we, we never do it. We've never, we've never obeyed enough so that we can have eternal life. Which is why the option is not disobey or obey, it's disobey or believe in someone who can obey on your behalf, who can take the wrath of God on your behalf, and who can raise to life to give you this eternal life that you don't deserve. It's called grace. The thing is, like, you might, in life, be able to do less bad things. Like, I've seen that happen. People change for the better. They change their habits. Maybe you start to do less bad things. But behavior modification will not grant you the life that you're looking for. Like behavior modification, doing the best that you can, cannot save you because it relies on you. It's like I already mentioned there's churches that are telling people like that they're good enough the way they are. But like Chelsea mentioned today, there's, there's also... There's also churches where they're constantly telling you that you're falling short and you need to do better. You know? But neither of these will give you what you need. Neither is the antidote. There's like danger in both approaches. So there's this fancy word called antinomianism. It means against the law. Basically the idea is that the law, the, like the law has been taken care of so now you can live however you want. You're good enough now. You're good to go. You, you don't need to obey. And then there's moralism, which is like the latter, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like become good enough so that you're acceptable. Just do better. But these are two sides to like the same worthless coin. And both of them rely on you. This is how, this is how the logic works. Either you're good enough the way that you are, or you're good enough to become good enough. Antinomianism says you're good enough the way that you are. You don't need to obey. You're good to go. Moralism says you're good enough to become good enough so just try harder you have what it takes if you would only try the bible says that that's not the truth no one is good not even one the scriptures claim and so we cling to jesus because he can take away god's wrath and then through faith we can have eternal life in him so it's like this like you surely can disobey your way into the wrath of god but you cannot obey your way into the life of God. I'll say that again. You can disobey your way into the wrath of God, but you cannot obey your way into the life of God. That's like not an option. It's not a good strategy. Not long after this interaction takes place, John the Baptist is taken to prison and then he's beheaded and his head is served on a platter before the king to one of his guests who requested it. He died. John spoke in an earthly way. He was from earth. Do you know what happened with his followers? When he died, none of them had their sins atoned for. 
because of his death. None of them found eternal life because he died, because of his like, sacrifice. John the Baptist did not have that kind of power, which is why he pleads with them to believe in the Son. You know, to put things in the rightful place. He says, stop looking at me. Stop looking at the friend of the groom. Start looking at the groom. And they're so close to the truth. You know, like, very few people in the scripture have heard the gospel as clearly proclaimed and as often and has seen, like, saw Jesus as the followers of John the Baptist. Who is just constantly in the desert, desert talking about people need to, they need to repent of their sins and look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You have this sin problem and there's the answer. And they hear this over and over again and yet they don't get it. Like they're so close. They're so close. Been um, reading books lately. Uh, that's a weird way to say that. I, I'm reading a book and in the book... Um, for like context to add to the drama of the narrative, they go back 50 years and tell of this murder that takes place of this family. And the murder is very strange, and here's how, here's how the author puts it. He says, The police had never read a stranger report. A team of doctors had examined the bodies and had concluded that none of the family had been poisoned, stabbed, shot, strangled, suffocated, or as far as they could tell, harmed at all. In fact, the report continued, in, an, in a tone of unmistakable bewilderment, the family all appeared to be in perfect health, apart from the fact that they were all dead. I think there's a way for us to treat church in such a way where, like, we are trying to be better, and people could come through our doors and they could be like, wow, these people all look like they're in perfect health, except for the fact that they're dead. Like to know that we're, get, we're obeying more, but without the real transformation in life of the gospel. It's like Chelsea said, God does not want obedience divorced from your heart. In fact, for you to know eternal life, your heart has to turn to him in faith and cling to his mercy and his grace. So we turn our eyes to Christ in this humility and we ask him to save us and he surely will. He surely will. And when he saves us, this is, why, this is why John can say, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Because we will change as we believe. So we don't base our hope on our obedience, but our obedience flows out of the gospel changing our hearts because we start to experience his goodness and his love in action in our lives. We start to hear his voice and it gives us joy. It gives us peace in the midst of turbulence. I want to close uh, five facts about our church. Four facts and one prayer that I hope becomes a fact. Number one, Gospel Life Church uses a pulpit because we want people to know that the message is more important than the messenger. Number two, our church is convinced that true transformation only comes from the gospel believed and it's far better than behavior modification. And there's far more joy in it. Number three, our church is content for what's spoken up here to be repetitive week after week. Like we're going to talk to you about what Jesus has done that we could not do ourselves over and over and over again. And that may seem boring and you may be like, you may be like, oh man, the church on the street, they're doing like a series on, I don't know, 10 exciting things in the Bible. It's like we're going to talk about the gospel every week over and over again. 
Because that's the power of salvation for all who believe. And belief only comes through hearing, and hearing only comes through the gospel preached. Number four, Gospel Life Church has no interest in helping you appear to be in perfect health apart from the fact that you are dead. And so we will not shy away from the reality that we were once wretched sinners, but there's a way to not be a wretched sinner anymore, but to instead find eternal life, and that is through Jesus' death and resurrection, and only through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. Not through looking like you believe in Jesus' resurrection, but actually believing. And number five, and like I said, like this is more of a, a prayer than a fact, but you may have noticed that our church is growing. There's more people coming each Sunday. It's really exciting. There's less parking spots and less donuts, which is less exciting for me <laughs> in particular. But we don't want to be like John's disciples, consumed by pride of like, look, all these people are coming to our church, you know? We got something special going on. And then we're all in despair when people leave. What's going on? And we fire Jeremy. He's homeless. No, I'm just He's not here, so. I heard a rumor that you all have been comforting him when I make jokes at his expense, and that needs to stop. Okay. <laughs> we want a humble preacher. Okay, so that's my goal. Um, but our goal as a church is not a crowd, you know? We're rooting all of life in the gospel for God's glory and the city's good. We exist for God's glory. We are not existing for our glory. We are not going to push the groom aside and stand up there on the platform. We want to celebrate when we hear his voice. We want to worship him alone. And so our job is just like that of John the Baptist, which is to point people there is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so this is what we do. Because Jesus actually is the Lamb of God. He actually did die for our sins. He actually does make our joy complete. I don't think John just stumbled upon a lucky illustration talking about the bridegroom and the bride. And he talks about like how his joy is made complete just by hearing the bridegroom's voice as, a, as his friend. But imagine how much more joy the bride has when she hears the bridegroom's voice. My friends, my brothers and sisters, we are that bride as Christ saves us for himself and we are moving towards the ceremony where we will one day hear his voice and our joy will be made complete. And even now, even now, we hear his voice and it gives us joy because we don't have to rely on ourselves to be good enough on our own, like everything's good, to carry that weight of being good enough to be good enough. We can put our faith in Christ who was good enough on our behalf. We can have the joy that we find in humility. And someday, we will not have to worry about the very last part of that, process, of that passage about obeying or not obeying because we will all be made perfect in his presence and we will enjoy that wedding ceremony with the groom who died to save his bride. Let me pray. Father, would you grant us humility and not pride? Would you grant us trust that gives us peace that goes beyond understanding even when there's like horrible things that happen in this world and in our lives and to our friends and to our family? Give us peace knowing that you are in control. You are above all and you are from above. 
We thank you, Lord, that you care for us deeply so that we can hear your voice and trust you. And we pray that this would echo into our lives so that it wouldn't just be here that we proclaim to each other that you are this giver of joy and of eternal life, but also to our friends and our coworkers and our family members that don't know you. Give us courage to say, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's the hope you're looking for. There's the true reality, and you don't have to live in delusion or mystery anymore. In Jesus' name, amen.